2: This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up, life in Syrian refugee camps is not easy, as Connecticut Saud Anwar found out during a recent trip to the border of Syria and Jordan. But first, what's the thing we should measure when we try to determine how a society is doing? It's a difficult question because many of the traditional metrics we use tend to equate economic success with quality of life. Wealth and education level are relatively easy easy to measure, but don't give a full picture of a community's well-being. Last year, New Haven-based Date Haven completed what they're calling the largest-ever survey on neighborhood-level quality of life, health, and happiness. You can join the conversation at 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. What's your quality of life? How happy are you? It's one of the things that we're going to be talking about with Mark Abraham, who's executive director of Data Haven. Uh, is also W.K. Kellogg Foundation Racial Equity Fellow. And uh, Mark, welcome to the show.
3: Thanks so much for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you, John. So first of all, tell us about the survey. What motivated you to do this? So this survey was a very high-quality, one-of-a-kind survey. It involved in-depth uh, live interviews with expert um, staff at the Siena Research Institute. And ultimately, we interviewed about 17,000 adults in the state in every town. Um, each interview was an 18-minute long um, interview and about 80 to 100 questions. And these are basically the, um, each interview is the story of someone's life in Connecticut. So when you put all this together, keeping in mind that one person represents maybe 50 or 100 um, other people like them in the state, and then they're weighted to represent that group, um, like in other surveys, you gain really tremendous insight into how neighborhoods are doing in the state, how groups like young adults, older adults, much older adults, and and minorities and other groups are doing in Connecticut on a whole range of issues that we ask about on the survey. Seventeen thousand people. That's an enormous survey. Yeah, it was a very intensive effort, um, and we had about fifty partners throughout the state who funded the survey. So it was part of it was just um, getting that group together, and then. Um, Because there's so many funders across different issue areas, they're interested in different topics, and that's what makes the survey unique is that it really, it's it's a survey about many different topics ranging from employment to community life to safety, health, Um, transportation and and other issues. And we're going to get to some of the findings in in just a moment. Uh, Just in terms of methodology, how did you
2: make sure that out of the 17,000 people that you had, it was an accurate representation of who actually lives in Connecticut, so that you made sure you had all the Mm -hmm. racial, ethnic minorities, all of the various income levels
3: represented? So we did um, an unusually large number of interviews by cell phone, and that's a good way to reach people, both people who have listed numbers, sort of billing addresses, but also the unlisted cell phone numbers people may buy. And um, having worked on many surveys around the state, I think this is a really excellent data set. And um, again, the weighting ensures that the um, the final estimates we produce for a town or a, a region are uh, representative of that group.
2: In, in just a moment, as I say, we'll we'll get to some of the the findings here. I want to bring in Anita Chandra, who's a director of uh, RAND Justice Infrastructure and Environment uh, throughout her career. She's worked on a number of studies and projects related to community well-being. Anita joins us by phone today. Welcome to Where We Live. Thanks so much for joining us.
0: Hi, John. Thanks for having
2: me. Maybe you can just explain through all of your efforts why a survey like this, like the one that Mark and Data Haven has done, why this is so important to measure the sorts of things that we're measuring here.
0: I think it's important for two reasons. One, as Mark pointed out, it really gives you a picture on how residents are doing across the state and in neighborhoods specifically, which can help community leaders plan. But it's also very comprehensive. It really provides a holistic understanding of quality of life, which we know matters, not only in the immediate but over the long term. So capturing things like how do people perceive their community, how do they relate to each other, in addition to kind of economic indicators that are more traditional, really gives us a better sense of, of not only individual well-being, but community well-being. And that's important for ongoing policy and program development.
2: Anita, talk about the sorts of questions that get at that very fundamental notion that you and Mark are both talking about, quality of life. This is something that's quite a bit different than how much money did I make last year or was I employed? These are things that really get to how I feel about living in the place where I live and, and that's a very it's a very important thing, probably the most important thing we can measure. It's also probably, I would assume, pretty hard to develop questions around.
0: Absolutely, John. And that's why I think a lot of researchers are really refining how we actually capture these these indicators of of quality of life and well-being. So it's not just, as you note, kind of the economic indicators, but really understanding how do people feel connected to their neighborhoods and communities, how do they feel connected to their family members, their neighbors, their fellow co-workers, whether they want to contribute to their community, how they feel engaged in the civic processes of their community, can they really help to inform the direction of where their community or neighborhood is going. All of these things matter in terms of what people perceive their life to be, how happy and optimistic they are, how resilient they are, but also it contributes to sort of the overall health and livelihood and productivity of that community, and capturing that means asking a lot of questions about how people really participate, and those are the kinds of questions that Mark and his team really have put into their survey.
2: Could, could you pick up on that, Mark, and, and tell us about some of the questions sure. that you're asking?
3: Yeah so this year I sat at a table at the World Health Organization in Geneva with representatives from Shanghai and Hong Kong, Melbourne, Tehran, uh, New Haven was one of 15 cities that was selected there to help create a guide to measuring the age inclusivity or the friendliness of communities to aging in the in this in the world and we were a test case because of this well-being survey um one of the interesting things was from Tehran, where they were very concerned about whether residents in Tehran, Iran, would be advocating for improving their sidewalks if they had a lot of broken sidewalks in parts of the city and um, trying to figure out, you know, the connection between residents and their elected officials or the bodies that govern uh, that city. Um, and I think we found similar things in Connecticut where we, you know, um, some older adults are more likely to uh, feel included in government, more likely to contact their officials um, and have influence in that sense. And, you know, as you know, sidewalks, um, good quality sidewalks are important to people's ability to get around their neighborhood. Um, there's just tremendous differences by whether people have access to a car and their, you know, other other circumstances about their um, family life or their personal background that would influence their connectedness to government and ability to, to affect change in their neighborhood. You
2: you just gave me a really good idea for a future program, though, because I'm I'm fascinated by the notion of of how the quality of the sidewalks actually affects the quality of people's life and connection to their government in Tehran, which is something we, frankly, in America never, ever think about. We think about all sorts of other things that people must be concerned about in in Tehran, but they're probably not concerned in our minds about potholes. But you know what? They probably are, just like we are here in New Haven. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) fascinating study. Well, okay, so let's get to some of what we found here. First of all, some of the top-line things, Mark, that you found as
3: far as community well-being here in Connecticut and some of the things that maybe surprised you? So one of the things uh, that was important about the survey was the the need to measure health conditions locally. Since we have this great federal or state-level data on health, um, we don't often have that data locally on things like dentist visits and smoking. And one of the things, you know, in Connecticut, I think more adults have visited a dentist in the past year than in any other state. We have about 75 percent of dental visits this past year. But if you look at neighborhoods in the state, it can really vary from about 50% to 90% visiting the dentist. And that, that's a pretty big difference, especially after you adjust for the age. Um, there are groups in Connecticut that provide free dental care to in low-income neighborhoods. And I think they'll be um, very, you know, they are very interested in using this data to kind of measure how they're doing and which groups they're reaching. Um, so that's one example. Another is um, just back to the health issue, like the smoking rates. I think it's important um, to realize like local officials, mayors, they have a different kind of reach in their communities than maybe the state or federal government does. They can, you know, organize things locally. And to have that kind of information about um, smoking rates in their community as a whole um, is very important for them to be able to to enact local legislation. Like in New Haven, they used these, um, the neighborhood level data we collected to um, help um, organize the anti-smoking program in that city. And you know, regulate smoking in parks and other public places.
2: Anita, could you talk a bit more about how you take information like this, very community-level information, and put it to work from a policy perspective?
0: Well, it's a great question. I think the uh, most important thing is that this data gets used, and um, being able to not only surface these top-line findings and have it available for everybody to consume and look at and understand, but then putting it in the hands of mayors and city leaders and city council members and saying... How are you going to now prioritize your investments? Given the dental visit finding or the smoking visit finding, can you align what you're doing in terms of policies and programs? Are they matching up to the need? if they are, great. Are those programs effective? If they aren't, should we be reallocating or targeting dollars accordingly to address those issues? It gives you really targets for investment and it also gives you targets for action and for really evaluating the impact. And that's the kind of translation of this kind of information into local action that is really meaningful. The other thing that a lot of cities and communities are doing is they're putting the data up much like Mark and his team are doing so that everybody can look at it. And it's not just about the government making decisions and making policy actions based on it, but the wide variety of community-based organizations, philanthropic organizations taking a piece of it and saying, I want to contribute. I want to take this challenge on with my partners and do something meaningful about it. So it's really a catalyst for government and non-governmental partnerships as well.
2: Did, did you notice, Mark, some other places, other than the ones you've already mentioned, where there were gaps between what we thought the priorities were and what the actual needs on the ground might be?
3: Um, well, I think the um, the great thing about this is that because it pulls together so many partners from across sectors, they can all kind of see how their work is connected to happiness and well-being. Um, so it's not just a survey about how healthy people feel, but it's measuring well-being, like as, as Anita mentioned, on a, a bunch of conditions. And any any issue you think about in Connecticut, like commuting time um, to these uh, health insurance and financial inclusion, they, they all have an impact on people's happiness, anxiety levels, um, and other aspects of well-being. So it's really important to to have those in a way that will con, uh, connect these groups together um, in the future and, and then break that information down to the local level. So, you know, definitely our next steps are to, to map the information in all the cities in Connecticut and develop local reports. Um, I'd also inv- invite listeners to go on our website at Data Haven and, ctdatahaven.org. They can download the uh, the survey results for themselves and start to look through those um, for their neighborhood or for their, their uh, group of
2: interest. We're talking with Mark Abraham, who's executive director of Data Haven, which recently completed the largest ever neighborhood level survey of well-being. And it's uh, fascinating in what it finds about Connecticut. Also joining us by phone is Nita Chandra, who's director of RAND's Justice Infrastructure and Environment Group uh, throughout her career. She's worked on a number of studies uh, and projects like this, um, I'm just going to read from the top line of your report, Mark. 74% of men and 75% of women in Connecticut report feeling mostly or completely happy during the previous day. However, this measure varied widely by income, ranging from, f- from 53% among adults earning less than $15,000 per year to 89% among adults earning $200,000 or more. So that's one of those. That's one of those things that you look at and go, "Well, of course, obviously, you make more money, you're happier. You make less money, you're less happy." But there's a lot more nuance in it than that. Can you talk about something like that? That that measure of happiness that doesn't necessarily always run along economic lines, but economics has a lot to do with it.
3: Yeah, we see economics um, influencing happiness and other measures, you know, across the board. But when you when you bring in these other factors, like commuting time, for example. You see that you know in low-income low workers in the state in many ways are more happy or less anxious than the very high-income workers who are having very long commutes. Um, so that's one one example of where you know these these factors all play together in people's well-being. And another one is there, which we find is really important, is people's. Um, some places it's called the quality of society, but we look at the responsiveness of local government to people's needs and. And on that measure, that's especially important at predicting how happy people are. So that those very low-income workers that you mentioned, the earn, earning less than fifteen thousand, they're actually just as happy as the um, households making two hundred thousand dollars a year, if they have a excellent um, sense of responsive government versus a poor sense. So that's that's an example where you know these other factors do affect people's quality of lives, not just income levels. And, and on the issue of income levels, that that also is very nuanced. It, gets into um, not just the income itself, but what wealth and assets people have to draw on and, and other things that um, would cause financial stress, which um, financial stress in and of itself is also one of the big um, issues that affect people's happiness.
2: But, but, and it gets to this point of stress is important, whether it's financial stress or stress of commuting, uh, and that can be a lot of different things. Stress is something that causes unhappiness in a lot of people. I, Anita, you, know, you worked on projects, as I've said, like this in the past, including a project somewhat similar in Santa Monica, California, the Wellbeing Project. Can you tell us about that and how it's maybe similar to what, what Mark is finding here in Connecticut?
0: Absolutely. So the Santa Monica Wellbeing Project is an effort as part of the Bloomberg Philanthropies Mayor's Innovation Project. And what Santa Monica endeavored to do was very similar to what um, Mark and his team are doing, which was to capture well-being measurement at the local level by using survey data, but also using social media data and other city data on what kinds of programs and policies are in place to support well-being. And we really measured it along five dimensions. And what we found was that even though Santa Monica has a lot to be proud of in terms of its economic vitality and its location near the beach. There were issues that um, are very similar to what Mark just addressed in terms of individuals' feelings of being able to progress economically in the community, feeling less connected than they would like to their neighbors, and a sense of community cohesion, which we know matters for health and well-being over the long term. So we've been able to take all of that kind of information and really use it to drive local policies and processes that are now underway in Santa Monica to address things like a sense of community, to improve the built environment or the physical environment, to address things like commuting time and traffic and development issues that can really stress and strain residents over the long term. So we're really using data to drive local action quite simply.
2: So uh, Mark, before we run out of time, uh, talk a, a bit more about where we head from here. You've mentioned that residents can go online uh, to your website, which we'll give again at the end of, of the segment, and find out more information for themselves. But but what really happens next with data like this? Because I think you know, look, if people have listened to our program in the past, I think it's fair to say that one thing that we we try to highlight is whenever our state or our local governments are making um, uh, decisions in a vacuum without real data and information. And this happens frequently. It happens because people want to make policies for their own reasons or whatever. Um, so now you've got all this data. What do you do with it and
3: make sure that it actually has some huge impact on the local level? So in our case, um, because of the way the survey was structured, it's basically a grassroots grassroot effort, um, combining um, organizations, about 100 throughout the state. Each of those local cities and areas like the Waterbury area, the, you know, Fairfield County, they're going to be pulling together um, tremendous reports and resources um, and, and often with our help to to digest that locally and and use that for health planning for local improvement planning. We also find that journalists are especially interested in this data, so that when they're writing an article on on farming, for example, they would want to use our local level data. So we expect to see you know about a thousand news articles that cite the data, and we work closely with journalists to help them uh, use this. So. That's a particular um, interest. Also, in a, in a few weeks, the Secretary of State is releasing a report called the Connecticut Civic Health Index with us um, as an author, and that covers um, you know, some of the state data on voting and civic engagement and electoral issues, as well as um, some highlights from the Wellbeing Survey around how to you know ensure that people can participate in, in their government. So uh, we're just going to be very busy for the next year or two uh, with this amount of data, and, and we're also working with national groups to, um, to write additional analyses or briefs. Um, that uh, cover issues like immigration status, which is your next segment, um, and racial and ethnic disparities, other topics that you know require this uh, more nuanced analysis. And we're really looking forward to those as well.
2: I, and I'll say, I, I'm really glad that it's coming out as we head into this election year, obviously a presidential election year, but more importantly, I think really to to the point of your survey. It's it's an election year where there's an awful lot of local elections that are going to make a big difference in people's lives, and and you're providing a toolkit for people to be able to get involved in their local government in a way that, that maybe they haven't been able to in the past. And I think that that's really important, like finding things that don't work and being able to say, look, if we can't change everything about my town that's not working,
3: maybe we can change these two or three things, Right absolutely um our favorite groups to work with are community groups again like i mentioned local small town mayors they have this reach that you know government larger governments don't have and community groups they're very good at mobilizing local residents so when we can get data into their hands and they can tell their own stories using that data that's that's our mission, um, is to make that available and, and help groups use it in that way.
2: We're going to be talking with the Secretary of the State Denise Merrill later on this month about this uh, survey that Mark was just talking about. We would love to have you back and maybe pour through some of this other data, because there's a lot more for us and other journalists to get to. But I want to thank you for coming in, uh, Mark. Mark Abraham is Executive Director of Data Haven, which completed this largest-ever neighborhood-level survey on well-being. Where do they find it online again, Mark? At ctdatahaven.org. Excellent. Thanks so much for coming in. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks also to Anita Chandra, who's director. Director of RAND Justice Infrastructure and Environment. Thank you, Anita. Thank you. Coming up next, we're going to get a report from the front lines of the Syrian refugee crisis. Saud Anwar, who's joined us in the program many times in the past, will join us once again. He just returned from the border of Jordan and Syria and talked to a number of refugees there. That's coming up next, where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Refugees fleeing the unrelenting violence in Syria have crammed themselves into overcrowded boats destined for Greek shores. They've applied for asylum in U.S. states, which are split on whether to open their arms or to shut their doors. But the biggest part of this refugee crisis isn't playing out in Europe or America. It's on the borders of neighboring countries like Jordan, where refugee camps are filled with people hoping for a better life. Dr. Saud Anwar recently returned from this region. He's a South Windsor Town Council member. He's Connecticut's first Muslim mayor, and he's spoken with us on issues uh, like these in the past, and we're glad to have him back in the studio today. Dr. Anwar, welcome back to Where We Live. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. And if you'd like to join our conversation, 860-275-7266, as we look into the front lines of the Syrian refugee crisis. Uh, First of all, what was the purpose of your trip? How did you end up there?
4: so so john there were multiple reasons uh, one of the the reason was of course to to get first hand information and, and to be able to help out in in one way or the other because i do travel every time there is some type of a disaster anywhere and try to make sure i can uh, be a part of some solutions and also it is important because i know how the dynamics work uh, I know in in our media in the U.S., there's been such negative views uh, that have been portrayed by some people about uh, the refugees and other people in the world. And with this globalized world, we are seeing um, the negative message going out to the people in in Middle East, which sort of reflects poorly on America. And it's actually an inaccurate portrayal because this is not how we are, who we are and this is not how... Everybody thinks it's just uh, some of the presidential candidates that think that way. So I wanted to make sure that we get the message out that the, the average American, the people, the Christians, the Jews, the Muslims, all of the people are united and are heartbroken with what's going on in Syria, and they want to help out.
2: Mm-hmm. So you were, uh, you were there and you visited a number of different places. Can you tell us first where it was exactly you visited? You were right on the border of Jordan and Syria?
4: Yes, so, so I, I started with Amman, which is the largest uh, city and municipality in in um, uh, Jordan, and then, and we went northwards and Azurka is, is another area, and then we went right at the border of Syria and uh, Jordan in, in one of the largest refugee camps to call the Zatari camp. Um, We were actually just
2: speaking with Scott Bates. He's uh, someone who joins us frequently, and he makes a number of trips to the Middle East. He does democracy building uh, there. He was in Jordan just a few weeks ago, uh, and we talked to him about uh, Jordan and the kind of fluid borders uh,
1: between these various countries. Let's just listen back to some of what he told us. One narrative that I think we do have to uh, look at and I would suggest reject, I heard this in the Balkans 20 years ago. There was a great book called Balkan Ghosts that came out. Bill Clinton read it read the book and drew, I think, the exact wrong lessons from it. Uh, He said, oh, those people have been fighting forever, so we have to stay out of it. Well, that was the exact wrong recipe uh, for the Balkans, actually. The international community got together, uh, us along with the European Union, and put an end to genocides that were going on. And there's been relative peace and stability in the Balkans for 20 years. So you cannot look at a region, and people do that now. Oh, the Middle East have always been fighting. Sunni and Shia, they're always at each other's throats. We have to stay away. I would say we have to be cautious. We have to be humble. We have to um, understand that we don't have the answers. Um, but we cannot entirely disengage. And We cannot say, well, these are mysterious tribal peoples who are rationally angry and will always hate each other. It's not the case. Uh, and as, as you're mentioning, uh, in uh, Jordan, for example, 8% of the population Christian. Been around since the days of Christ. Uh, you have... Every religion represented in the United Arab Emirates, in Jordan, uh, all across the Middle East. So a very complex area uh, filled with uh, bright, intelligent people. We cannot write off an entire region uh, and characterize them as irrational or not worthy of our attention or engagement. And that's Scott
2: Bates speaking on our program last week, talking about potential for U.S. involvement in this region. One of the things that we were talking about there, Dr. Anwar, is – Um, This notion that the borders that define countries like Jordan and Syria are actually were drawn some decades ago by the hands of Europeans, not by the people of those regions. And so you essentially have um, border crossings, places where refugees are gathering to escape um, chaos and and danger. But these places are only really nominally countries anyway. The borders are very fluid. Um, And as he suggests, this is a very complex region in which many Americans just don't understand very well. Uh, Just reflecting a little bit on what he just had to say there and and your experiences there, what what are some of your thoughts?
4: Sure. I actually agree with Scott because, um, first of all, I want to say a few things about the Jordanians. The Jordanians have been some of the most generous people that I have come across because think about it. Since the 1940s they have been accepting refugees from their entire region. A lot of the policies with the Jordanians have nothing to do with those policies. They have been actually sort of victims of taking care of the aftermath of all of those policies. uh, Seven out of every 10 Jordanian people living in Jordan actually are of refugee heritage. So think about it. Majority of the people are refugees in in that country between Palestinians, the Iraqis, and now the Syrians. And then that's uh, with with they have opened up their homes, opened up uh, to everyone with every and any background. There are about 10,000 the <laughs> Uh, Christian Iraqi refugees that actually have made uh, Jordan their home and then nobody asked what their faith was but they're able to practice the faith that they would like to and then, so that's something that we need to recognize now with, with ISIS at the borders in some of the areas the borders have actually become quite uh, important and they're being protected so there are international forces the Jordanian forces are much more obsessively watching the border and on the Syrian side so it's not easy for anybody to come there except for humanitarian reasons and they go through a checkpoint and we Actually, they could do a very thorough check and assessment. And then they become refugees at that point and, and, and either go to a camp. And majority of the time, they end up in a camp. And then now with with uh, stabilization, the, the influx is slightly decreased at this point. But it was quite significant uh, in the past um
2: I read here that eighty six percent of Syrian refugees are living in urban areas uh, The rest are in camps and you can 't move back and forth so essentially, when you are in amman jordan you you are actually you know in a large city, but you are in ground zero for a number of refugees from this crisis and from many other crises, that's what you're talking about. These these are folks who are not living long term in cam- refugee camps. These are people who are living in in big cities.
4: Yes, and and I think that's the part because the, the the camps get a lot of attention and rightfully they should get the attention. But majority of the people are actually not living in those camps and their opportunities they are in the society now. One of the things that the the laws are that the, the refugees cannot work because the unemployment has been on the higher side in, in Jordan itself. So because of the political reasons, the people are not allowed to work, which puts a lot of strain on those individuals. And they actually have to survive in that environment without doing much work and, and with very, very little resources. The United Nation has not been able to fulfill its uh, re, its expectations uh, uh, because they are not getting the resources. Almost what the United Nation has wanted, they're getting half of it. Now, the refugees, the fam- individuals, they're actually supposed to have $10 per person per month for food. Mm. Now, think about this. It's, yeah. it's, it's a family of uh, four or five people. They cannot get more than $50 per person, sorry, for the whole family per month. And, and and it's very difficult to survive in, in that kind of resources, and the United Nations is actually going to cut that even further going forward.
2: Uh, in Iman, you spoke with some urban refugees. You
4: asked them to describe the conditions of life at home. What did you learn from them? It was heartbreaking in so many ways, because these people were involved, they were working in a society. So so Syrian society has been a very dynamic society. There have been educated people, intellectuals, and, and business-oriented individuals who actually had their businesses and work and, and were employed. And, and we talked to people who in the room, 40 people, every single person that we spoke with had been working in the past. but But now because of the laws and because they were in a different country, none of them were working. And that was actually having a big impact on them personally. First of all, the financial impact. The second part is that they were not useful in the society that they were a part of at this point, and it was hurting them. And and of course, the little things that we take for granted, drinking water, having food, uh, having safe, hygienic places to be at, and it, those were uh, in impacting each and every individual in so many ways, and education of children, and then so on.
2: You, you talk with some of them uh, about whether or not they have uh, what they need to keep warm in their homes, and let's listen to a little a clip of something that you brought back.
4: How many people have been to Zatari before they were outside of Zatari? Okay, is life better in Zatari or is it better outside of Zatari?
0: Outside Zatari.
2: Uh, and and that 's actually moving forward in our conversation that 's uh, uh, Saud Anwar talking to people about uh, the refugee camp. Maybe we can uh, play the uh, the other clip we were going to play while we 're talking about life in Amman Jordan.
4: What type of Syria do they foresee in future which will allow them to go back politically.
2: Okay.
4: يعني شو هي سوريا اللي حابين ترجعوا بشكل يعني خلينا نحكي سياسياً. بشار. she sings
1: take,
4: take Bashar out of and stop the No air strike. No air strike. Okay, okay. If, if, if if there were no air strike and Bashar was still there. Would they go back?
0: It's a Bashar no. Bashar is still there, and, and airstrikes go away.
4: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
4: Everybody's
0: saying no. They're saying he's a
1: hypocrite.
2: Uh, that's some tape gathered by Saud Anwar, uh, who joins us in studio today. Unfortunately, we're uh, not able to, to call up the right uh, piece of tape that uh, we had hoped to talk about. So m- maybe um, you could just do this for us, sir. You can um, talk about what we just heard. Uh, you, you were asking the women about airstrikes, and you, were, and you mentioned the name Bashar al-Assad. And immediately, the um, the level of The level of discourse rose just a little bit. Maybe you can talk 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 about uh, what we just heard there.
4: So, so one of the the the, uh, I wanted to talk about what was the ground reality? How were the people feeling? And we hear about how Bashar Assad is is not being well liked by the Syrians, and also, of course, nobody likes ISIS. And and we wanted to look at what would be the future that they look at. And 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 uh, people actually have very negative feelings and very zero trust with Bashar al-Assad. And and um, in, in one of our previous conversations in a different meeting, I had actually said that you know maybe there 's a political uh, uh, solution to that. But when I talk to the people in Syria and, and the Syrian refugees. They actually have uh, zero trust with him and they're hoping that he would not be in power and, and that would allow them to be able to go back. And that's what uh, I, I sense from them. And as you heard, there was like a sort of an uproar. Everybody was uh, passionate and they did not want him to be there. Yes, they want safety and security. They don't want air strikes, But at the same time, they don't want him to be in power either.
2: Um, and in. And- this changed your mind because I remember we had this conversation and we had a, 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 not a debate, but we had uh, various views on this and,
4: uh, and it sounds as though the, this visit changed your mind somewhat Yes, it did because previously my my feeling had been that okay let 's take care of ISIS first, which I actually still believe that 's the first thing that we need to take care of and and then take care of Bashar, maybe he should not be in power, uh, and that would be a slow process, but i don 't think that should be a slow process process either. I mean the ISIS has to go first, but then second is is Bashar has to to go second mm.
2: uh, we 're talking with saud Anwar. I, I want to talk through some of what else we heard there. Um, You also, uh, in the clip that we played previously, uh, were talking with uh, people at a camp at Zatari um, about the conditions there. We were talking about urban refugees a moment ago. What was life like like in the camps?
4: So so Zatari is is a camp which has some 80,000 people. It's like a city. And, and, uh, and it has people of all different backgrounds uh, from the Syrian refugee groups. And, and they have been living there for, for the past almost two and a half years. And um, it, it's like a big prison. So they are safe with respect to no airstrikes in that area, but outside of that, there is uh, sanitation is not good, the water supply is poor and 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 uh, they are able to get some food, minimal amount of food and and it's almost uh, people cannot come in and go out and and, and While those services are rel- relatively easily available in in zatari the, the the refugees that are in the urban areas felt bettered because even though they don't have the services, but they don 't feel imprisoned. Wow. So so so
2: what happen how long will the people who are at these camps be in these camps
4: uh, till we find a solution because they 've been there for, uh, since uh, uh, the middle of two thousand and twelve and they've been uh, a lot of those people have been there since that time and and uh, they 're just uh, moving on uh, There are some uh, clinics and, and hospitals and, and and places there they are getting some food and and but the quality, the supply is, is not as good as it should be. And, of course, with the United Nations uh, not having the resources, those uh, challenges are increasing. So, so these individuals really do need help. United Nations needs help. The individuals over there need help. And, and they are actually um, going through this chronic, persistent uh, challenge for the past two, three years where it, things aren't getting any better.
2: And putting on your hat as a physician, you mentioned the, the, the health outcomes for some of these folks there. Maybe you can just talk through that a little bit when you go as a doctor and you see what life is like, uh, whether in um, cramped apartments that don't have enough heat or running water, in the city of Amman or in a camp like Sahari where people are essentially imprisoned in a, in a city of 80,000, what are the health conditions like?
4: So, so health conditions have, have been quite challenging. Now, interestingly, right at the border, they give vaccines to the children. But, but outside, when they come over into the cities and, and into the, the refugee camps, the healthcare is poor and the environment is poor. Because uh, with the cold weather right now, people, while they may have some blankets and so on, but they don 't have heaters, it gets almost freezing level at this time of the year and and the families are literally cramped together in a room, trying to keep each other warm and and there 's dampness uh, in in, in the, the the urban areas, about ten percent of the homes are exposed to the elements if there 's rain, uh, people actually uh, are are getting uh, the, the rain through the roof and ceilings are are leaking. And, and then there's moldy environment, so a lot of respiratory illnesses we are seeing. And, and then, of course, because of the water-related issues, so diarrhea is, is another issue. Now, leave the chronic illnesses alone, the diabetes, hypertension, and, and so on. There's post-traumatic stress disorders that people are facing from a psychological perspective. There are environmental health issues that they're dealing with, with respiratory and GI. And, and then on top of everything else, there are physical injuries. There are people that came across who had actually lost limbs, uh, who actually have no physical therapy, no hope. Uh, And these were like professionals who were doing their jobs who actually are now with physical disabilities from this war.
2: We have, uh, many would say, and we've talked about this on this program before, uh, a mental health crisis in America because of our our inability in some ways to to grapple with the real impact of things like stress, of trauma in people's lives. Uh, Taking the physical piece of this completely aside, When people lose limbs, that is obviously that is a byproduct of an ongoing war and something that that we don't want to see. But I can't imagine the psychological damage, the overwhelming mental health crisis that would be in a place like this when you have people fleeing war and then imprisoned for years, essentially, unable to find work, unable to move on from there. As a physician,
4: I can't even imagine what you're seeing there. It is So I asked a question, and this was a a question that brought tears to my eyes. Uh, This was I I actually asked the the people in, in a room in one of the urban refugee camps, and we said, how many of the children are having difficulty sleeping at night? And then do they wake up and then they start to cry? And and we had like 40 or so people. So we had like multiple sessions, and it would be usually 40 or so people in every session. And and everybody raised their hands because their children were actually having sleeping difficulties at night, and, and, and most of these children were crying at night. And this is uh, one, two, three years out from, from that disaster that they have been living. And and it sort of hits home when, when so many children are not able to sleep, and half the adults were having difficulties sleeping, and, and they were obviously having crying episodes as well when they would just uh, wake up in the middle of the night and cry about their losses, about their lives as such.
2: Which puts an enormous amount of stress on the adults, obviously, in their lives as well. Uh, We're talking with Dr. Saud Anwar. He's joined us in the program a number of times, and he's back uh, from a trip to uh, Jordan and the border of Syria where he's been meeting with refugees. When we come back, we're going to be talking more about the attempts to resettle uh, Syrian refugees here in the United States. You can join us at 860-275-7266. This is where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's show, from a land use standoff in Oregon to a gun rights standoff that is looming now in Washington, the U.S. Constitution is under daily scrutiny in American life. On the next Where We Live, we'll explore the foundational but outdated document called the Constitution, find out what it really means in this 2016 edition of our Constitution State. Hope you can join us on tomorrow's program. Today, we're talking with Dr. Saud Anwar. He's a South Windsor Town Council member. He's Connecticut's first Muslim mayor, and he uh, recently returned from Jordan, where he met with Syrian refugees. We've been hearing some of his story. Joining us by phone now is Chris George, Executive Director of Integrated Refugee and Immigrant Services otherwise known as IRIS, uh, to talk a bit about how the Syrian refugee crisis is playing out here in Connecticut. Chris, welcome back to our program. Thanks so much for joining us.
5: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
2: Uh, but Before I hear a little bit more from Saud Anwar about what refugees uh, in Jordan were telling him, maybe you can give us an update on where we are in resettling Syrian uh, refugees here in Connecticut.
5: Well, we, uh, we're we three refugee resettlement agencies here in Connecticut. There's Catholic Charities in Hartford, International Institute in Bridgeport, and uh, we, Iris, are, are based in, in New Haven. And all of us uh, will be resettling more refugees in 2016. We've actually asked the State Department to send us twice as many refugees in 2016 um, over what we resettled in 2015. So far, when it comes to Syrian refugees... We've probably, as a total, welcomed about 70 or 80 Syrian, individual Syrian refugees to the state of Connecticut. Uh, That translates for us to about a dozen families here in the greater New Haven area.
2: So when you say you'd like to double the numbers in this year, uh, double the numbers of overall refugees, double the numbers of refugees coming from the Syrian crisis...
5: Double the numbers. Overall, we receive refugees from Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Eritrea, Sudan, um, and the Congo. Um, A portion of the refugees in 2016 will come from Syria. You know, overall, the national target is around 10,000. How many of the 10,000 will come to Connecticut? We're not sure. It's usually about 1%. um, So... What would that be? A thousand.
2: What are the uh, challenges right now of resettling people who are fleeing what's happening in Syria? Maybe some of the people who Saud Anwar has been talking with. What are the challenges of resettling Syrian refugees compared to those coming from other parts of the world right now, Chris?
5: Well, refugees from Syria are uh, have a lot of similarities. Refugees from other other countries, um, Um, They don't speak English, um, most of the refugees from Syria. Their families, uh, mother, father, and children, like most refugees, um, highly motivated, want to work, want to become U.S. citizens. Um, The special uh, issues are probably things related to the the freshness, the rawness of the conflict. Um, They... um, they have not spent, you know, 15 20 years in refugee camps. Um they left Syria 4 or 5 years ago. There's still uh, horrible things going on in Syria. So they still get news about their friends and relatives in Syria who are suffering. So the the conflict is current, it's raw and it does kind of play out uh with some mental health issues. Um some are serious and and some are um, you know, not so serious uh, depression, anxiety, some post-traumatic stress disorder. But the Syrians we have welcomed here are, are really determined to, you know, hit the ground running. They're they're kind of blue-collar, middle-class, salt-of-the-earth types that you know want to just roll up their sleeves and uh, and you know become Americans.
2: Uh, Saud Anwar, before we we, uh, get some of your thoughts about um, about how refugees from Syria might be coming to Connecticut, maybe you can talk about what you heard from some of those you met on the Syria uh, border with Jordan. I mean, are these people who, generally speaking, would love to go back to the country they fled, um, or are they looking for a new home?
4: So um, one of the things I I just want to just talk about briefly is that people— over there, many Jordanians and some of the Syrian refugees knew about Connecticut. And I would say where I'm from, from Connecticut, this is the globalized world. Because of Connecticut's acceptance of refugees and because of our governor's uh, positive stance on this, and, and also the story of the Indiana uh, refugee that came over here, this was known to many of the people over there. And that brought a smile to their faces, which was quite exciting to see that, oh, my god, I mean, this is a globalized world. We do what they do over here. It actually gets heard all over the world um the 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 people actually um they know that uh, Syria is changed completely forever it's not going to be the Syria that they had uh, left it's it's a country which is actually going to have to rebuild the infrastructure so some of the people recognize that they would have a responsibility after peace times to actually go back and rebuild their country. So that's some, one of the things. But but they know that it's going to take a long time before anything like that would happen. So they are hopeful uh, that they may have a better future uh, to actually have an opportunity to come to the U.S. In, in a peaceful place, a place where the values that they live by are also similar to the values that we have here that, that uh, align together. And, and they are hopeful that there will be more people getting accepted in, in the United States.
2: I just want to go back to that. You actually heard people who, who knew where Connecticut was and, and had thought positively about our, our tiny little state?
4: Actually, they had heard about it because of the, the whole uh, story about the Indiana family. And then that actually got uh, resonated. And this actually was something the Jordanians talked about when they said, and then some of the, the Syrians actually smiled when they heard about uh, the, the Connecticut. They didn't know where it was, but they knew that there's a, there's a friendly place in America.
2: A friendly place in America that maybe it can be on our on our license plates uh, coming up soon um, th- this notion that they may find a better a better life somewhere else the somewhere else could be America, the somewhere else could i assume be Europe. Can you talk about the what you heard as far as the migration patterns and the places where people might try to go because there are enormous difficulties um, to flee that area. As you've outlined, the conditions in a place like Jordan are not good for those who have had to stay there for quite some time. So they're looking for other places aside from friendly Connecticut. What else are people talking about? Where else are they they looking at? Well,
4: ultimately, deep down, they would want to go back to their own country. And I mean, that's that's the the, the ultimate goal, because some of the people kept saying that uh, if if things would get better, if the governance would get better, if there's a good um, uh, uh, democratic government, which is uh, and then there's a just government, they would want to go back and rebuild their country. And I think that's one of the important things that we as Americans may keep in mind, that we have a role in the peace building, but also rebuilding. Of of Syria and in, in, in future and then a lot of people would be able to jump in and help out in that process as well. But uh, till that time, it's it's important that everybody do their share. So uh, in my conversation, whether to go to uh, people would like to go to Europe or to uh, United States uh, and, and other parts of the world, uh, they just want a safe place where they could work. Mm-hmm. And if if they could work in Jordan, they would actually work more in Jordan as well. So I think that's the part is as you take a young healthy family and and, and give them the education. All the things that we value in our homes, in our communities here, we want our children to get the education, we want safety, security, and to be able to be constructive part of citizenship of our society. That's what they're hoping to be able to do wherever they go.
2: Uh, Chris George, maybe you can just tell us briefly what are some things that you're looking at, aside from increasing the numbers of refugees coming into Connecticut, what are some things that you think that you need in order to make that easier or better for people coming up in this uh, next year, this 2016?
5: Right. Uh, first, let me correct the number I mentioned earlier. We expect probably about 100 Syrians if the um, uh, average over the past few years plays out, about 100 of the, of the 10,000. Um, so what we uh, have seen is an enormous outpouring of support from across the state. Community groups, churches, synagogues, mosques, colleges, rotary clubs, people want to help. I've never seen anything like this, John. Um, our donations are up. So all of this allows us to tell Washington, D.C., we can take more refugees. I mean, we're not. what are we going to do with all this support? We're not, we can't stockpile it. We want to... Uh, be able to work with these community groups. This is the old-fashioned way of welcoming refugees to this country. It predates the establishment of today's system of resettling refugees. This is community groups, usually faith-based groups, opening up their arms and saying, we want to take a refugee family into our community. We're going to do that. We'll probably work with 50 community groups across the state in helping refugees resettle in those communities. We're going to train them. We're going to provide backup. We're going to hire a case manager to work with them, and it's going to work. Um, All we need is for our federal government to respond and send to Connecticut, which now has a a global reputation for being refugee-friendly, to send to Connecticut more refugees. You know, Traditionally, we welcome only about 500 refugees a year. Over the past 10 years, that's been Connecticut's average, about 500. We can do better than that. We have the resources to do better than that.
2: And and, uh, Saud Anwar, in just the last minute that we have, make a case for why that's important. Why would it be important for Connecticut to increase the number of people it's taking in from places like Syria or elsewhere in the world where they're fleeing?
4: Actually, this is who we are, as, as Americans. And, 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 and we are a great nation. Everybody talks about the greatness of America. The greatness of America comes not only from um, the, 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 the strength that we have with our military, but also the compassion that we have as a military. We can actually balance out the compassion and also with our safety and actually do what is right. Now, these, cities, these new, new uh, refugees that are coming, they're actually coming in legally. They are actually educated. They are enterprising individuals. These are families who want to work. These are not ones who have broken the laws. All they want is safety, security, and to be able to do the job. They will actually bring more economy to the state and then bring more opportunities. Whenever uh, immigrants who are legal immigrants come, they actually bring a change in, in, in twice as many uh, small businesses than any other groups that are out there. So financially, there is a way to do it. There's an there's a economic reason to do it, and there's a moral reason to do it. And, and, and in the globalized world, we have to make sure that people realize that the country with the highest GDP in the world, 22%, is only covering 0.04% of refugees, and we can do better.
2: Dr. Saud Anwar is a town council member in South Windsor. He recently returned from uh, the border of Jordan and Syria. He's uh, one of our ambassadors from Friendly, Connecticut. Uh, Thank you so much for being here again. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thanks also to Chris George, Executive Director of Integrated Refugee and Immigrant uh, Services, otherwise known as IRIS. If you want to continue this conversation, go to wnpr.org slash where we live. I'm John Dankowski. Thanks so much for joining us.